Apologies. Oofta. Oh my gosh. You're listening to Ah Geez, a Fargo recap podcast from Minnesota Public Radio. We're here to provide an authentic Minnesota perspective on a show that's named after a city in North Dakota. Every week we go over what happened and who's dead now, and we'll ask experts to weigh in on the show and talk about the murders, the mob, the music, and more. I'm Tracy Mumford. I write about books for NPR, and I love cable TV. I'm Jay Gabler. I write about music for The Current and Your Classical, and I'm an editor at a pop culture blog called The Tangential. Today, we are going to recap the first episode of Fargo Season 2. We're going to talk to Dave Kenny, who's the co-author of the book Minnesota in the 70s, and we're going to speculate about what might be coming our way next week. The arrows. Gail's putting in the arrows on Reagan. This episode kicked off with a black-and-white fake movie starring Ronald Reagan. Although we don't see Ronald Reagan. (laughs) Right. But his name comes up big on the screen. It's this fake movie called The Massacre at Sioux Falls. And a movie from Reagan's movie actor career. So the movie itself was supposedly being made quite a ways before the setting of the TV show in 1979. That's right. I I read that. So Noah Hawley, who created the show, said, I kept expecting Fox to tell me, like, no, you can't open the season with a fake Ronald Reagan movie, and just nobody ever said no. So that's what we have. So what's he like, anyway? Who? Dutch Reagan. Ronnie! Ah, the prince. The real class act. And then we uh, there's a news montage as the credits roll. Sort of catches up on the historical context. We see Jimmy Carter's Crisis of Confidence speech where he's talking about the on way that the nation is experiencing. Is America heading downhill? And we've got all these clips. We've got John Wayne Gacy. We've got war footage. I mean, it's definitely showing like society is on the brink of something. There's serial killers and bombings and Jimmy Carter appealing to the nation. So we've definitely stepped in something, basically, is what this historical montage is telling us. Welcome to 1979 in not Minnesota. We're in Fargo, North Dakota. That's right. So... In Fargo, we meet this crime family, the Gerhards, uh, and we meet them first with the eldest brother, Dodd, played by Jeffrey Donovan, who is doing, I think, one of the worst Minnesota accents I've ever heard. Said 11, not noon. What? Say that again. Okay. Say it again. Okay, okay. Where's the goddamn money? Gave it all of you, like yesterday. Don't lie. I mean, I'm I'm getting it. It's just a little late. The hell you say I did the rounds. Everybody paid. Of course they're going to say that. So you got the money. So here we've got Kieran Culkin. He's kind of the, the, the ninny little brother. His accent, respectable. Jeffrey Jonathan in there. I was like, is he Irish? Like, I don't know. I, I was not getting into his Midwest accent. For me, for something I... No, you're in for the family, not for yourself. And interesting here, I think we get a technique that we saw a lot in the first season of Fargo, which is characters who bear strong resemblance to characters in the movie, but are not those characters. I think the younger brother, Rye, really is kind of channeling the Steve Buscemi type. And the Potter Familias is extremely reminiscent of the grandfather from Fargo. You half expect him to say to his kids... What are y'all going to go to the McDonald's? (laughs) Right. So, okay. So we've met two of the brothers. We meet the rest of the Gerhardt family. Basically, they live in this like big estate outside North Dakota in the snow, naturally. Um, And we've got Otto, who is the patriarch of this crime family. We find out they're hemorrhaging money, they're gambling and drug 
profits are just not what they used to be. Nothing is in 1979, right? It's, it's tough, t- tough times for everyone in 1979. Otto Gerhard like, gives this big speech about how anyone who's, you know, muscling in on his family's profits, like he's going to grind their bones and make their bed. And then ah, ah. I thought that we were going to have our first body like eight minutes in. Yeah. I thought Otto Gerhardt down for the count, dead. But not quite. So he has a stroke, right? He's not dead. But he's at least out of uh, out of commission for the moment. So his family is going to have to go on without him. But meanwhile, we found out that Rye has uh, plans to make it on his own with a scheme involving, wait for it, IBM electric typewriters. I love this. He's so convinced that this is going to do it. He is teaming up with this kind of shady car salesman and, and pitches his brilliant plan. Behold the future. I'm talking money hand over fist. A typewriter. Uh, a self-correcting IBM Selectric 2 electric typewriter with patented high-speed type ball. They're not just for women anymore. And you're sure we're the only? Sole distributor Midwest region. Uh, assuming you're willing to forget certain debt, so dear family from the... Uh, Gambling. Yeah, which, you know, I'm not proud. So, as soon as you talk to the judge... And she unfreezes the accounts. Well, then we can turn on the money spigot. Big bucks to be made in type balls. This is a totally foolproof plan. I just need to convince this judge to unfreeze the money and then I'll distribute typewriters until I'm a millionaire. It's the American dream. But, of course, these accounts are frozen, right? They need to get a hold of this money. So Rye thinks he's going to intimidate the judge. So he tails this judge from North Dakota down into Laverne, Minnesota. So, Welcome to Minnesota. Right? We're on Minnesota turf now. And where do you go when you go to Laverne, Minnesota? To the Waffle Hut. So he follows the judge in. Uh, and I love the judge is just playing this like hard ass lady. And his brilliant idea is to just like scoot into the booth with her and tell her, hey, I'm going to change your mind. You got to unfreeze these accounts. But uh, she has brought protection. And by protection, I mean a can of bug spray. (laughs) Right. So he gets basically mace in the face. DIY mace, right? You just carry around a thing of like... (laughs) Yeah, that's right. In the years before, mace was really a thing. You just... You you brought your can of bug spray. Or, you know, actually... Maybe. We don't know this. She might have just had that can of bug spray in case she encountered bugs. General needs. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And so now we do get our first murder of the show, right? So Rye, he feels his manhood has been insulted he's his brother's already ragged on him earlier the day like he is at snapping point and he snaps he pulls out his gun he takes down the judge takes down the cook takes down the poor waitress and now we're looking at a triple homicide situation he doesn't follow like the first rule of murder movies which is do not turn your back on a body ever uh like the judge manages to stab him in the back when she comes back after shotgun one yeah and and it's funny i I felt that like that steak knife wound in a way that all the shotgun blasts in all these movies you know you're just like oh that that goes but you can really just imagine getting stabbed between the shoulder blades with a steak knife at the waffle hut that would just be uncomfortable (laughs) just a little bit right and then he does it again and he turns his back on that waitress and she staggers out into the snow he has to hunt her down in the snow again of course how would we know we were in the midwest if it wasn't covered in snow uh takes down the waitress for the final time but then now he's out in the street sort of staggering around trying to figure out what you know his next step is when whoops yeah he gets nailed by a car but that's right after i what i would call my oh my gosh moment of the show when he looks up in the sky and there is 
a UFO, right? I mean, I don't know what else you would call it. It's definitely a UFO. It's looking and sounding like a UFO. Right? It's twirling lights. It zooms off in the distance. And I'm like, wait, what? Like, are we going supernatural in season two? He's there, awed by the UFO, and this, like, great 70s land yacht of a car just nails him. Uh, Idles for a minute, right? Thinking about it. And we don't, this is crucial, we don't see who's driving the car. It's dark. Crucially, we don't know what the person's motivation was, right? Is this someone who came to take out Rye deliberately or is this an accidental situation? I love that the car stops and thinks about it for a minute though and then just drives away with Rye <laughs> yeah. on the hood. Like you can do anything on a backcountry road in rural Minnesota apparently. We've got our murders. Now we need our heroes. We need our cops to come swooping in. So we meet Lou Salverson. And he is, so we meet him at home with his uh, young family. He has a wife and at first... It seems, you know, there's there's some uneasiness going on there. We don't quite know what's going on at first, but he's got he's got a wife who's clearly they they have an affectionate relationship and they have a young daughter. This would be young Molly who becomes the heroine of season 1. We see her as a young child in this glorious late 70s Laverne, Minnesota home. Uh, we orange everywhere, shag everywhere. It's it's it's, it's a lovely beautiful. split level, of course, right? It's total an all its 70s glory. So Lou gets pulled out of like his domestic bliss, basically, because the phone rings and there has been a murder at the Waffle Hut. We go to the crime scene. Lou Salverson's there. He's like walking through this mess of blood and waffles and smashed coffee pots. Ted Danson comes in playing this very distinguished looking state trooper. He looks around and he has like the most Minnesota reaction I can imagine to finding three dead bodies in a Waffle Hut. Oh, this is a deal. Yeah, it's kind of a deal. And the state cops don't want this one. So this means uh, it's going to be Ted Danson's crime to solve, at least initially. While they're surveying the murder and the mayhem, uh, Lou Salverson is also like casually asking Ted Danson to dinner because we realize Ted Danson is Lou Salverson's father-in-law, of course. And Ted really wants Lou to talk about his feelings. <laughs> right. This has become like a really touchy-feely family affair over the dead bodies. So they're investigating this crazy scene and nothing seems to quite add up, right? There's like too many cars in the parking lot based on how many bodies there are. And one of the cars, we know it's the judges, has a North Dakota plate. So what was she doing coming from North Dakota to Laverne, Minnesota? That's not a short drive. That's like a couple hours. Theoretically, she could just love those waffles. But uh, yeah, this could be a plot point that could become significant later because we, we we don't find out what she was doing making that drive. Right. And there's also something really weird that uh, Ted Danson notices when they're out in the snow looking at the crime scene. There is a shoe in the tree. Now, could this have been Rye's shoe? Unless it's like the UFO shoe, but I think Rye's shoe is the more likely response from that car impact. So theoretically, a shoe could have flown off Rye and gone up into the tree. Oh, that would have been that would have been quite a fling. There's a shoe in that tree. It sure is. It's great, great detective work. But meanwhile, Lou heads to the VFW to relax, play a little bingo. Yeah, we've got some super 70s bingo action happening, and Lou's buddies include Nick Offerman playing Carl Weathers, who's this total conspiracy theorist nut who I love, and he has like this great facial hair and this super nice suede coat going on. So now we have sort of a trio of friends with Carl Weathers, and there's sort of a 
timid, you know, other friend. And we sort of end up with a very um, big Lebowski like trio here with Nick Offerman kind of in the John Goodman role, kind of the big mouth conspiracy theorist. And this, I feel like there's this could establish what could be a pattern over the course of the season, which is that we're starting to get references to Coen Brothers movies beyond just the movie Fargo. I think that we're really seeing some exploration of the whole Coen Brothers universe. And so people who are fans of the entire Coen Brothers filmography will have a lot to catch over the course of this season, I'm guessing. Right. They're definitely leaving like little treats for people who are paying attention. Um, At this VFW drinking thing, another thing comes out, though, which we've it's been hinted at pretty heavily through the episode. But uh, Lou Salverson's wife has cancer. Yeah. She just had her first chemotherapy. Nick Offerman has a great line about like, if John McCain could survive the Viet Cong thumb screws, then she can make it through this cancer thing. So you've got a little hat tip to John McCain there. Um, I think they're going to have fun playing with all that history. Yeah, yeah. This is uh, the the post-Vietnam era, so still very, very, very present in the minds of Americans. Now we leave the VFW and we go and meet this uh, not-so-happy couple at home, Ed and Peggy. Uh, Ed is a I mean, he's pretty happy-go-lucky. He's kind of the butcher's assistant and comes home with his pork chops. And he's content to just, like, sit at home with his wife and talk about having kids. Peggy, not so much. (laughs) To have kids, you need to have uh, the kind of relationship where you touch each other occasionally, ideally without your clothes on. And it doesn't really look like they're on that kind of a basis right now. Yeah, Peggy's not so into it. We get this definite housewife discontent. You know, she wants to be a hairdresser. Um, she wants to take these life spring seminars. She'd love to, if we could just like ditch this place and move to California, right? She is just not into this domestic 70s home life that her husband loves. And she just she also seems to be a little bit on edge, which initially you think is maybe just because their marriage is on the rocks. She's had a busy day. But then you learn, oh, no, she had a uh, she had a little incident earlier in the day. We go in the garage and we see a car that we recognize with a giant person-shaped hole in the windshield. She tries to say that she hit a deer. No, she hit she hit uh, a very alive creature who is making noise in the back of the garage, and this would be Rye. Very much in pain, very angry, comes for Ed. Ed and Rye kind of tussle in the garage, and there's like no tools available except this garden trowel. And the minute he picked that up, I was like, oh, I know what's going to happen. And then exactly that happens. It happened, <laughs> right? So now Peg and Eddie have left their lovely meal of hamburger helper and have a dead body on their floor of their garage, which they've both contributed to killing Rye. And you got to think, you know, I mean, Rye clearly had it coming, but man, not the way you want to go. Getting stabbed first in a diner with a steak knife, then getting hit by a car, and then getting troweled in the abs. (laughs) That's just, yeah. Yeah. But now he's dead for real this time. Now he's absolutely dead. definitely dead. And Peggy says... Uh, we got to get through this together. We can't tell anybody. And poor schmuck Ed just goes along with it. If we're going to get clear of this, then we're going to have to clean it up. Pretend it didn't happen. Because if this comes out, if this, then all the things you want, that we want, that's over. Right. And Peggy's motivation here is that Peggy thinks that she actually 
you know, killed, essentially killed Rye by hitting him with the car. That she's, she's thinking she was involved in uh, what they may call a hit-and-run situation. And that she, you know, could go to prison. They could both go to prison if it's revealed that she inflicted the fatal wound on Rye. I would note that. So Ed is being played by Jesse Plemons from Friday Night Lights. And the same thing happened to him on that show where he, like, got involved with this girl and ended up having to kill somebody. And then they just never talked about it again. So for Jesse Plemons, this is a little bit of a rerun. He's kind of your go-to guy when you want a reluctant murderer. So he's like, all right, all right, we'll, we'll, we'll do this, Peggy. We'll, we'll do the same thing that people do in every movie with a dead body. We will put it in our freezer. Yeah, exactly. And of course, they have a freezer out in the garage, big body size freezer that uh, Rye fits perfectly into. Right. So we closed the lid on Rye for a moment. Literally. Yep. But now we're going to take a little jaunt down to Kansas City. So earlier when we met the Gerhards, they were talking about how someone's kind of muscling in on their territory. They're gambling and drugs profits are down. Uh, And I think we meet those mobsters down in Kansas City who are responsible for that. The main component of our northern expansion strategy involves the absorption of the Gerhardt family syndicate headquartered in Fargo, N.D. Now, the Gerhardts control trucking and distribution for the entire northern Midwest. It's a family business started in 1931 by Dieter Gerhardt. Now deceased and taken over in 1950 by his son, Otto. Now, not in the report, but of relevance to this meeting, old Otto had a stroke yesterday in the family compound in North Dakota. Leaving who in charge? Unclear. His wife, Floyd, she's tough, but, you know, a girl. And then there are the three sons, Dodd, Bear, and Rye. And of course, they all want their shot at the throne. Love that slide projector. And he's back in the days when if you wanted to give an audiovisual presentation, you had to make your own slides. I love that the mob uses slides for their dirty plans. I also love that uh, we've got Brad Garrett there from Everybody Loves Raymond getting to play like a dark, nasty guy. I think he's going to have a lot of fun with that. So and this is pretty much uh, the end of episode one. The Kansas City mob heads up to Fargo and uh, the song we hear over the ending credits of episode one is Go to Sleep Little Baby, which is a song that may be familiar to Coen Brothers fans from another film of theirs, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Okay, so my oh my gosh moment was obviously the UFO. What moment left you wondering like, what? I I feel the reveal that it was Kirsten Dunst who was responsible for hitting Rye in the road. And I feel like I was like, you know, throwing my hands in the air at that point, not so much because it was or it should have been surprising, right? But I'm just so bad at figuring out what's going to happen in a show. It's like, oh, of course it was her. But I'm still wondering, and I, I I don't know what the answer to this is. I'm still wondering if there's more to the story than meets the eye. I mean, I think we're led to believe at this point that it was a pure accident that you know that she hit him in the road. But you think was Peggy it? did it on purpose? I. I'm just saying that's you know that's a distinct possibility. Okay, hold on to that theory. All we'll right. See what happens. All right. Since we've traveled back in time for the new season, uh, let's talk about how accurate this 1979 version of the Upper Midwest is. We've got an expert on Minnesota in the 70s here with us, Dave Kenny, the co-author of the book, Minnesota in the 70s. Dave, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. It's fun. Since these are the, this is the last pre-Reagan year, what are some of the things that are on the minds of Americans at this point, right before the Reagan years start? Minnesota, people 
forget, was sort of a harbinger of things to come. 1978 was a really big election year in Minnesota when what had been a DFL, Democratic-controlled political system in Minnesota throughout the 70s, suddenly switched. 1978, the Republicans came in and just blew out the Democrats. And the big issues at that time in that election were taxes and spending. And I think a lot of people around the country started looking to Minnesota as going, oh, if that could happen in Minnesota, what's going to happen in 1980 in the big election, the presidential election year, which obviously brought us Reagan? Um, Minnesota was one of the first places where we saw signs of what was going to be happening politically over the next five, 10 years. So why do you think it is that Minnesota was a harbinger of this movement? What was it going on in Minnesota and across the country that caused people to feel perhaps dissatisfied with the status quo, feeling like there needed to be a change, receptive to the new the new Republicans' message. Yeah, I think there were a lot of things going on. Uh, much of it is touched on in that that uh, Carter speech that's in, uh, included in the montage there at the beginning of the show. Uh, th- this idea that something's wrong in the country. Uh, we've lost our confidence as uh, in the United States as Americans. Um, rightly or wrongly, I think there was this perception, and Carter in many ways was was blamed for that. So given that this is Fargo, we're talking about crime, we're talking about murder. There was a nod to John Wayne Gacy in the opening credits of Saw the, that. Yeah, the first episode. So can you talk about what sort of crimes would have been on people's minds at that time? Well, I think one thing that a lot of people who were around during the 1970s think back on uh, when we're talking about the crimes of the period would have been uh, there were a couple of kidnappings um, in Minnesota during the early to mid-70s. Uh, one that comes particularly to mind was the Virginia Piper kidnapping. I think that was 1972, where her husband ended up paying a million bucks uh, ransom to, to get her back. Uh, but the other one that probably people really are thinking of most of the time during 1970s here in Minnesota was uh, the what became known as the Glen Sheen murders up in Duluth, uh, where uh, a very wealthy woman, uh, Elizabeth Congdon, was found dead in the Glen Sheen estate in, in which she lived. It ended up uh, that her daughter, Marjorie Caldwell, uh, and her um, uh, son-in-law, Roger, were, were uh, charged with the murders. Uh, Marjorie ended up being acquitted. Roger was sent to prison for it, but that was a very big deal here in Minnesota at the time, uh, caught a lot of attention and had a, drew a lot of headlines during that period. I, I think maybe that sort of added to this, this idea of uh, things are just getting, getting out of control, um, that we, we don't have a handle on things. And so people would look at these strange cases uh, coming out of Minnesota or elsewhere. I guess the, the Gacy is a, a case is a, a great example of, of just the, the weirdness uh, that was happening. But it sort of feeds, I think, the, this atmosphere that maybe they're, they're trying to create here in Fargo. In the first episode, we have some definite housewife malaise going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we also have the judge, who's a woman in a place of power. Mm-hmm. And we've got this dismissal of Floyd Gerhardt as tough, but, you know, a girl. A girl, yeah. Exactly. So <laughs> can you talk a little bit about 
of what point in history we are with the women's lib movement and what we're kind of seeing on the screen with that? Yeah, I think, I guess what we, this is what we now would call the second wave feminism, uh, late 1970s. It, and, and it was really in the early 70s where I think uh, women were starting to really assert themselves. And there's no question that there was a backlash uh, to that, that uh, there are a lot of, lot of men, probably a lot of women too, that just didn't feel comfortable with this idea of, of trying to break out of the traditional roles. Um, and I think that's probably, I'm anticipating that that's going to be one of the more interesting parts of what happens in, in the series now is to see how these female characters develop. I think it is pretty representative of the time that uh, women were in many ways trying to break out of the domestic role and also uh, establishing themselves in the working world in ways that they had not done before. And I, I guess perhaps being the matriarch of a, a crime syndicate would be one way of doing that. We've also seen a ton of the 70s hallmarks in this. We've got feathered hair, we've got sideburns, we've got split-level homes, we've got bingo at the VFW. I mean, are we seeing like a 70s pop culture checklist or is this authentic or just what we've come to expect from things set in the 70s? I think a lot of it is authentic. There are a couple of things that stood out to me. The reference to Hamburger Helper, I think was from, as a Minnesotan, was a wonderful thing because Hamburger Helper is a Minnesota baby. It uh, was produced for the first time by General Mills, I think it was 1971. And uh, so I appreciate them, you know, throwing that type of thing in. Uh, if they really wanted to get into it, they'd mention Tuna Helper, which I think came the next year. Uh, maybe not quite as popular. The one that I loved, and I don't know that it's necessarily a 1970s thing, but it brought me back to my parents so much. Um, the Garage. I don't know if you noticed. Uh, there are a few few shots where you see the tennis ball hanging down from the rafters of the garage. And this reminded me of my parents to a T. And they do this. They hang the, the tennis ball down from the rafter and, and, and put it in the right place so that you come slowly into the garage. And when your windshield hits the tennis ball, that's when you stop. You know, you're in the perfect spot in your garage. And I just laughed out loud when I saw, I guess it was sort of a flashback scene where you see her drive the car with... Yeah, with a body hanging body, on the hood. Uh, and instead of the um, windshield hitting the tennis ball, the guy's rear end hits the tennis ball, and that's when she knows when to stop the car. Maybe it is sort of a checklist of, of things that, that are touchstones for people from that period, but why not? It's fun. And it does, I think, establish a little sense of credibility. Yeah, I noticed the tennis ball detail, too, and I thought that was great. It really pulled off that Fargo trick that, that both the filmmakers and now the makers of the TV show have been striving for, which is to contrast those really mundane right. details right. of Midwestern life with this horrific scenario involving murder, mayhem, crime, 
So speaking of Minnesota details, so a lot of the references that we have seen are sort of universal or common to Americans of the period. You'd recognize them if you were thinking about the 1970s anywhere. But as someone who's an expert on Minnesota specifically in the 70s, are there any Minnesota-specific references you're hoping to see in the rest of the series? People, places, things? Well, I think one, one part of it is just given where it's set. This is small town rural America. This was a really difficult time for a lot of of small towns. It was the beginning for many communities of an extended period of difficulty, especially an economic standpoint, because what was happening on the farms at that time, farms are getting bigger, but they're also employing fewer and fewer people. Railroads are leaving in many of these towns, including Laverne. So I would expect and hope to see some references as the the uh, the series continues to that type of thing about how these towns were struggling to find a new identity at a time that uh, the economy was really being really hard on them. And so when the Kirsten Dunst character is talking about thinking about maybe just getting out of town, it's maybe not just having to do with the fact that, well, she's she thinks she's just killed a man right. <laughs> or that she just wants to go to the small town, but that opportunities could be really shrinking in this yeah, town. Yeah, I, I think people are starting to look toward the future and going, what what is going to be here for me, especially if I'm a young person? And that uh, migration away from the towns is a, is a real issue that they're still dealing with today. What else did we miss from the 70s perspective as a, as a historian and someone who's written about it? You know, one thing that hit me, and I would be really surprised if this doesn't turn out to be a big deal in this season, believe it or not, is the whole UFO thing. It may sound weird to bring this up uh, as far as the 1970s go, but there there were a couple UFO cases in Minnesota that were pretty big at the time. You know, if you follow this sort of thing, and I'm sort of embarrassed to say that I do, uh, this was a big decade for UFOs in Minnesota. In the scene where they're going from North Dakota to Laverne, uh, the sort of leading up to the Waffle Hut, and in the soundtrack, you're hearing... Uh, this song called Children of the Sun. That song is all about aliens coming to Earth, invading Earth. Remember, if this is supposed to take place in early 1979, it was just a little over a year before that, that the movie Close Encounters of the Third Kind came out. Then you put that together with the fact that later on in 1979, there was this case in Marshall County, Minnesota, right near the North Dakota border, not too far from Fargo. Probably the most famous UFO case in Minnesota, UFO history, a case where this guy named uh, Val Johnson, he was a deputy sheriff, and I don't know, one o'clock in the morning or something, he's out on this rural road, and he sees this bright light traveling at what he described fantastic speeds, and then all of a sudden he hears this bang and he, go, he goes out cold. And he wakes up apparently an hour later or something like that. And he's got signs of burn marks on his skin. His, his uh, squad car has been horribly damaged and nobody can explain what went on. And this is considered one of the best UFO cases just because there's physical evidence and all that sort of thing. But the fact that that happened in 1979, it happened near the North Dakota border. It was a deputy sheriff. 
it makes me think something's going on here in the producer's head that uh, something's happening with UFOs, flying saucers. I, I think we're getting set up for something supernatural. So Minnesotans in the late 70s and early 80s were ready to believe. They were, yeah, and, and, and for good reason, because weird stuff was happening. Well, thanks a lot for coming in. Appreciate it. Happy to do it. It's fun stuff. So next Monday, we will be back on our couch watching episode two. But what do you think is going to happen? Well, I think, you know, clearly the Kansas City mob is going to show up, have a confrontation with uh, this Fargo crime family. We're going to see what comes of that. There's also the whole question of the power struggle among members of the Fargo crime family. What's going to come of that? We're going to find out whether Ed and Peggy get away with it. I don't know. Do you think, uh, do you think Ed has uh, his uh, cojones enough to pull this off? I don't know. Also, the Gerhards don't know that Rye is dead yet. So... What's going to happen when they figure out that like the youngest son of the most powerful crime family in the Midwest has been killed by our little couple in Luverne? And what's going to happen to Rye's partner without the, I mean, I don't know. I don't, I don't think that the judge being killed is going to free up those accounts any sooner. You are obsessed with the typewriters. I, it's true. Yeah. Also, what is up with the UFO? That's what I'm waiting to see. And the shoe. And the shoe. Will the shoe fit? And who will it fit? Dun, or who dun, dun. would it have fit? Thanks for listening to episode two of the Augies podcast. We will be with you next week to recap what happens on the next episode of Fargo. Augies is produced by Tracy Mumford, Jay Gabler, and Molly Bloom. Our engineer this week is Corey Schreppel. Many thanks to John Gordon and Steve Nelson. We're live tweeting the episodes on Twitter at Augies Podcast. That's A-W-J-E-E-Z podcast. Our theme music is by the Valdons, courtesy of Secret Stash Records. Find more at secretstashrecords.com. Okay, then. Bye now. Bye now.